All right, if you would please turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. I'll be reading chapter 5, verses 26 through 6, 5. Galatians 5, 26 through 6, verse 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Father, help me just re-say what you said by the Spirit through the Apostle Paul to the churches in the region of Galatia in this passage. Help me be clear as a teacher and to unfold it. And I beg you to make us hear it with ears that hear, with eyes that see, and thus be brought again and again to repentance and the joy of the grace of Jesus Christ. Work it in us as individuals who are not islands, but who are members of local churches. To the glory of Jesus Christ. I ask this. Amen. just want you to listen carefully, real briefly, for the flow of what Paul has been saying up to this point through chapter 5, which will lead right into continuing the flow of this morning's passage. He has said to us, ultimately, through love... Christians in churches, through love, serve one another. Walk by the Holy Spirit and you will not be fulfilling the desires of your sinful nature. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Order your life step by step by the Spirit. And now, this morning, watch out for pride in how you deal with one another in this battle of sin, which is the Christian life. And, know this, that love for fellow members of your church means Correct. Restore. Am I on? I went off. Correct. Restore. Am I on? Thank you. It means to correct and to restore in a very careful way. Those brothers those sisters who are caught in the web of sin and their sinful lifestyle patterns. But he's not done. He says, but oh, as you do this obedience to the command, be very careful, first and foremost of your own heart as you help pull others out of their sin. 
That's our text. I want to remind you of our church covenant here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship like so many tens of thousands of other churches. Here's one of the short paragraphs that when we become members, we say, yes, yes, that's my, that's my vow. I'm one of them. Quote, we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes members of a Christian church. We will be exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. See, church covenants, they don't come out of the blue. Well, this sounds good. They come directly from clear New Testament passages. Salvation in Jesus assumes community. The community of the church. Church living, church life and accountability. And that's the point of this passage. So if you're there, Galatians, start with chapter 5. Verse 26, Paul writes to the churches, let us not become proud or conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So, this command here in verse 26 is directed against sin. The the Pride that flows from sin. And then he shows two of its manifestations. So the word translated here, conceited, it it means conceited, it means pride, vain, glory. At its core, what it means is don't be that church member who is saying, you don't say it with your words, but mean it in your heart. Look at me. Notice me. Notice my Christianity. That's what he says don't do. When you're alone in your closet, he says don't be that way. And the context for this command has been the whole flow. He hasn't left the context. It is walking by the Holy Spirit so that you are not giving in to the desires of your flesh, of your sinful nature. And therefore, when Paul gives us this command in verse 26, he is essentially saying a person who is being led by the Spirit never has any Valid reason for pride, for conceit, for I am superior to others. Because the person walking by the Spirit understands the grace of Christ and that every good thing worked in them is a gift. And therefore, there's nothing to boast about. If there's any holiness, which there should be in every Christian, in your growth as you pursue holiness and pursue Christ and you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Christians are never to boast as if they, over here by themselves, have produced those things. Remember how Paul rebuked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7? What, what, what do you have? But I'm really smart. I got great leadership skills. I got control of my sexual nature. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast? as if you did not receive it. So Paul's main point here in verse 26 is all such conceit, all such boasting like that is sinful. 
And then he gives two ways in which that sin of conceit or pride manifests itself. Let us not become conceited. Here they are. How? By provoking one another and or envying one another. That's kind of ambiguous and that word by provoking one another, what, he, what, it, what it means is by challenging one another. It doesn't mean playing a nice game of pickup basketball. It means this disposition of, I'm going to show I'm superior to that brother, to that sister. It's that attitude. I'm going to challenge. I'm going to show. I am inherently better. That's how conceit manifests itself. Well, the other one is essentially the same. It just flipped over. Envying one another. I mean, this is the temptation, not merely to say, let me show you that my gifts, my abilities, my walk with Jesus is better than yours. It flips it over and says, oh, dang it, I get around that person and their abilities and their superiority is evident. And you feel, doggone it, not as good as they are. And that produces a begrudging of them. And that's envy. And that's conceit. And that's pride. Both of these are pride because they're rooted in what I, what I, 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 or they, they, they achieve on their own, apart from the Holy Spirit. Alright, so that's His command to us in verse 26. Now just erase that big 6 as chapter 6. Paul didn't write chapter 6 and verses, okay? So he says, verse 26, here's the negative. Don't do this. Don't live this way. Don't be this way. Now verse 1. But this. So let's hear it. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. But what? But brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Here's the command. You break it down a little bit. There's four clauses here in verse 1. First, if any Christian in your church is caught in any sin, or trespass, first clause. Okay. Secondly, then there's a response. The spiritual ones are to restore the wayward brother or sister, correcting him or her. Third clause. The means by which the spiritual believers are to do the correcting is in a spirit of gentleness while being self-conscious, looking to your own motives and your own heart as you do so. Which leads to the fourth clause. You do this inward looking of consciousness so that you'll prevent yourself from also falling into sin, conceit, arrogance, pride. That's what he says. So we got a picture here. Someone in the body is in clear, sinful pattern of the way they're living and choosing in their life. They're caught in the web of it. And he says, the spiritual persons, who are they? You don't, I mean, I used to go to churches where they, I mean, that meant, you know, the spiritual. Not your standard Christian. No. In the context here, it means everybody who's walking by the Spirit, who's walking the Christian life, and not caught in the web of sin. That's the context. Those who are walking by the Spirit. Verse 25, two verses earlier. It doesn't refer to super spiritual one percenters of Christianity. It refers to the standard everyday 
Christian loving Jesus in the local church. Those are the persons. Spiritual pride, legalism, in Paul's mind, are always a danger. And so what he does here, he shows how dangerous legalism, pride is by giving the way in which we Christians, when we need to bring others to restoration to Christ and repentance, here's the manner in which you better do it or you are in danger. Do it by the means of a tender, gentle spirit. There's no bashing there. There's no arrogance of superiority there. This never says, I can't believe, this person is so stupid. How could they fall into such sin? Meaning, I would never do that. Oh, you're already almost in the, the, the throes and the depths and the, 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 the web sticking to you of the spider of sin when you're thinking that way. So Paul says, be very careful. Watch it. Why does he do that? Because Paul knows that a truly spiritual person, to the extent they're spiritual, they're aware that the only reason they're not in that sin, in that lifestyle right now, is the grace of God. And they continually, day by day, look to their heart. God, am I walking with you? So he says, as you do this, do it keeping a watch. It's like a guard. You've got to stay awake. The others are asleep. See if there are any enemies coming. You've got to do that for our souls. Keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So here Paul, in verse 1, has those who are spiritual. You're walking by the Spirit. You were supposed to love others here by calling those who are wayward and, and they're not turning and, and they continue to walk in a path that shows the hardness of heart in the decisions they're making, restore them. See, this is an example of what Paul said a few verses earlier in chapter 5, verse 13. Through love, serve one another. So how do you do that here? Paul says, as you're walking by the Spirit and you correct the sinning brother or sister, you do that in a disposition of gentleness, tenderness, and with an introspective heart. Where am I? Where am I, oh Jesus? But for Your grace right now, that's where I am and You live that way. So don't miss what Paul's really doing here. He, he's got these warning signs, you know. Danger! Danger in what I'm telling you. And the context is someone has just really gone off the rails. Like 1 Corinthians 5, the man who was sleeping and committing uh, adultery. And no one's doing anything about it. Paul's livid at their arrogance that they won't confront him. Okay, okay. Here's the context. Danger! And his danger warning is not for that person caught in that sin. His danger is for the rest who are not caught in that sin. You need to deal with that. And how you do it is where there is great danger. He spends five Verses here warning about what might happen for the spiritual believers who are dealing with the person living according to the flesh in unrepentance. He says, believer, as you deal with this part of which is church life, your main issue 
is watch your heart as you do it. As you hold one another accountable. That's his main point there. Verse 1. He gets very specific. Here's the situation. Deal with it and deal with it this way. Specific. What's he doing in verse 2? When he comes to verse 2, I contend he's not changing the subject. He says the same thing. In verse 1, it's specific. In verse 2, it's the general principle. Bear one another's burdens. The specific that Paul gives concerning... What do you mean, bear one another's burdens? Is verse 1. When he says, bear one one another's burdens here in the life of the church... He's not referring to the burdens that we all at differing times and to differing degrees experience. Sick loved ones. Financial crisis. Death in the family. Burden after burden. That's not what He's referring to here. We should, because it's very New Testament, very biblical to do that. But here, to stick With the context, it refers to the burden of a brother or of a sister being overcome with sinful behavior that needs to be turned away from. That's the burden. It's the burden of verse 1. Or or to say it, let me me go to another writer. The the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 3. Here's the burden. The way he lays out this burden. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, what? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's the burden of the deceitfulness of sin that is causing a believer to turn and to stay turned away from walking in the light. They are walking in the darkness. They have turned away from walking by the Spirit to walking by the flesh. They have turned to walking in clear disobedience to the Word of God written. That's the burden. The person is caught in the web of adultery. You who are spiritual, deal with it. Seek to restore. Oh, but be very careful. Do it in a disposition of gentleness. They're caught in a web of stealing thievery. They're caught in a web of refusing to forgive a fellow Christian. They're caught in the web of hatred. They're caught in the web of gossip after gossip after gossip after gossip of tearing others down. They're caught in the web of having sex with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. That's the burden. Bear one another's burdens. For the Apostle Paul, no matter what it is for what we think churches in 21st century America, Paul says, the church is never to say, that brother's sin is none of my business. His point is, to business is churches. Take on the trouble. 
Because it is trouble. Take on the burden of helping the other realize their sin and come to repentance and faith again in the true Gospel. This kind of Christian fellowship, Paul says, is what fulfills the law of Christ. He writes right there. Read it. Verse 2. Bear one another's burden. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what Paul is saying is we as Christians, we are in constant, desperate need every day to be walking by the Spirit so that we can love one another even in the hard things like restoring others from their sinful, hard-hearted patterns. And Paul lets us know it is a dangerous, uncomfortable work of the Holy Spirit to deal with the transgressor and seek to restore him. That's the main point of the passage. Because he spends most of the passage warning against the danger of pride in the necessary work of restoring wayward church members. The Apostle Paul has zero patience for the mantra of today's worldly church that says something like this. We should never make judgments concerning each other's life choices because after all, even we Christians, nobody's perfect. He has no patience for that. But instead, he asserts we must have standards of right and wrong, of acceptable and non-acceptable, of the difference between walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. And because you all have the sinful desires of the flesh within you, every church member everywhere, that's the daily battle, Paul says you better therefore be very introspective, self-vigilant to humble yourselves as you go about this much-needed task of restoring the wayward brother. Okay. Now, I hope so far, up to verse 2, that makes sense. Okay? Because what he has just said is why he says what he says now in verses 3 to 5. For, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing. He deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Got it? No, you don't. All right, so let's go slow. What he's doing here is he's unpacking verse 1. See, when he says in verse 1, 
Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Here, let me unpack it. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, this is a radical attack on our pride. Now, by that phrase that Paul uses there, he thinks he is something, he means morally something. I didn't fall into sin. They did. <laughs> I'm something. That's what he's talking about. He means this idea that apart from the special grace in, within us, he says, Christian, you are a child of God's good, holy, perfect wrath. That's what you deserve. How could you think you're something apart from the grace of God? Now, I just this is how Paul says it in Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's pretty radical. He clarifies, that is, in my flesh. And we have seen in Galatians, by that, and he means it in Romans. By flesh, he means that nature that is, thinks itself to be autonomous, self-reliant, produces works of the law, legalism, or it produces whatever feels good, I will do it. He says, that part of me, apart from the grace of God making me a new creature in Christ, that part of me, there's nothing good in me. As Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Or in 1 Corinthians 3, Seven, Paul writes, so neither he who plants, okay, you got different teachers in the church or preachers in the church, neither he who plants the church nor he who teaches and waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He means to the extent that there's any good, it is all owing to God who gives the growth. He means what He already said back in chapter 2, verse 20 of Galatians. For I have been crucified with Christ. That I, which I? That I that thought I was something. A Pharisee of Pharisees. Is to the law perfectly righteous in His eyes. That I that is arrogant he says, that I has been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So Paul means here the approach that you are to take towards others, the disposition we are to have that the I in and of myself is absolutely nothing. Don't ever think you're something. But the I, the I that is now connected to Christ, that walks by faith in Christ, that walks according to the Spirit, that thus is able to help restore a sinning brother or sister that I knows it is all owing to God and His grace. And there is therefore no ground for sinful boasting. Ever. That's where Paul is coming from. Now, if we followed Paul's flow of thought now so far up to this point, I think it helps us grasp the surface complexity of verses 4 and 5. Let me read them again. 
But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, I don't know how many numbers of times over the years I've had Christians ask me, how do you understand this text? And why they're doing it is because on the surface it seems to be a contradiction. In other words, verses 2 and verse 5, they may sound to the first hearing like they're opposites. In verse 2 he says, bear one another's burdens. In verse 5 he says, each of you will have to bear his own load. In other words, others are not going to come bear it for you. Huh? And then in verses 3 and 4, they sound like opposites. He says, in verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something, we just talked about that, you have nothing to boast about, not something. If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then he says in verse 4, But let each one, context, let each Christian test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Okay? So, taking everything I've said all the way back through chapter 5, the fruit versus the flesh, and verses 1 to 2. I think putting it all together, this is what I think Paul is doing and what he means. When he says here in verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, he means don't weigh your growth, your walk with Christ, your achievements by the Spirit of Christ. Do not weigh those over against the shortcomings and the failures of others. That's what he means. That guy sin big is the context needs to be restored. Don't be like this. I'm not that bad. Therefore, I love that picture of that guy's sin. I'm okay in comparison to my neighbor. When he says, our own work, or his own work, he means the work. The fruit in your life. The fruit of the Spirit. So you don't get puffed up over a brother who fell lower than you. That is sin. He's saying, Christians, stop feeding your own pride by comparing yourself to the sin of others. Don't measure your moral achievement, your walk with Christ by those of others. Instead, you measure them by the law of Christ. You alone before God. Don't venture to say, but God, X, Y, and Z, I'm doing better than they are, so I'm okay. He says, that's a deception. Don't do that. Is that? Okay. Then whatever there is in you as you stand before God, whatever there is in us worked by the Holy Spirit according to chapter 5, you 
can boast. But your boasting won't be a boasting in comparison with others. The boasting will be a boasting of Jesus Christ, how He's worked in you by the Spirit. Okay, that's my best shot. That's what do you think you say. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in comparison to his neighbor. Okay, so it raises the question, can a Christian boast in anything? A few verses down, Paul will say in verse 14, But far be it from me to boast. I won't. And then there's an exception clause. Far be it from me to boast, except... Meaning, this is where I will boast. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or, in 1 Corinthians one thirty one, Paul writes, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, go ahead and boast. Oh, but, boast in the Lord. And in Romans 15, 17-18, he writes, In Christ Jesus, then, I, Paul, have reason to be proud of my work for God. For, he's not done, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That's boasting. In the cross. Not in comparison to a neighbor. And that boasting never comes with the sin of arrogance or pride. It is utterly reliant on the grace of God. Don't think you're something when you are nothing. Paul is saying, but boast in God, in the good He's producing in you. And this is not just Christianese. He knows our hearts. It's all owing to you, God, today. That's what he's saying. And that's why verse 5 is not a contradiction to verse 2. See, when he says in verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. What he's doing there is giving a reason for verse 4. So let's read them together and hear him. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, or in comparison with his neighbor. Now here's the connection. Why? For, or because, each person will have to bear his own load. In other words, he's saying, don't even try to lighten the load of your own sin by comparing yourselves to the failings of others. Why? Because you're going to bear your own load in the judgment before the Lord. Not in comparison to others. At the judgment seat of Christ, no one, no other fellow believer will make our load lighter because they're worse than we are. That's what he's saying. Let me just draw from F.F. Bruce, now gone to be with Jesus a few years back, but a major commentator on Galatians, New Testament scholar. He writes right here in these two verses, the connective gar, that's the Greek word, it means for or because, that's at the beginning of verse 5. The connective for suggests that Paul applies verse 5 to the situation with which he talked about in verse 4. 
one's responsibility before God. In the day of Christ, in other words, Paul would not be asked how his achievement compared with Peter's. At the tribunal, each of us will give an account of himself to God. End quote. So at Judgment Day, no one will make our load lighter by being worse than we are. Paul says, get rid of this idea. We will all bear our own load in that day. And so the thrust of this passage is believers walk by the Spirit and constantly be checking your own heart and your own walk with God. Your own walk according to the Scripture. Your own walk according to the law of faith and the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is saying that's the attitude with which we are to approach the necessary dangerous job of restoring each other when any of us get caught into the web of sinful patterns. So now, and we will be celebrating communion this morning. It is one reason I really want to do this. Peter and Alex are. I'm not done with the sermon, so sir, just go ahead and sit down. The one reason I want to do this is Peter was newly baptized last week, so this will be his first holy communion with us before they jump on a ship and go work for months. And so as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, let's take these biblical words to heart. Let us not become conceited by provoking one another, envying one another, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what communion is about. It is about the members of Christ's body coming together again and again and again and centering around Christ's death. Centering around the cross that put away our judgment and washed away our sins and provides Absolute forgiveness. It is we sinners, the body of Christ, coming together, constantly checking our attitudes and our hearts towards one another. Do we seek to serve one another in love? So you remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, they're coming together, taking communion, along with the love feast, eating, feasting, drinking, and there is radical insensitivity toward others. The rich couldn't care less whether the poverty-stricken brother or sister or that family had much to eat, and they just feasted in front of them, etc. And Paul is livid that they're not understanding the Christian life. You don't deserve the body, rightly. When sinful, blatant, unbiblical lifestyles are being lived in the church and they're not dealt with, Paul is livid in 1 Corinthians that you are utterly arrogant, not humble. How we discern our lives with one another has everything to do with coming to the Lord's table together. And so I'm going to pick up, after Paul laid that out, this is how he continues in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 32.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. And then Paul tells us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner like conceit through provoking and envying one another will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Because anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so as we come to the table this morning, oh, we're coming again to the death of Christ, which means no matter what your week is like, how we examine our hearts right now, the forgiveness of sins is in Christ and in Christ alone. Let us humble ourselves in with repentance and faith in this glorious gospel as we dramatize it again with the physical elements of the bread and the cup for all baptized believers. Amen.